0: Fellowship and love. Ignatius Press is pleased to announce the first national book club created for Catholic schools. Ignatius Book Club for Catholic Schools was launched to support Catholic schools' dedication to forming the whole child, mind, body, and spirit. Ignatius Book Club for Schools partnered with leading publishers of children's literature to offer the best books and educational materials for all reading levels and interests. Head to ignatiusbookclub.com slash podcast and find wholesome books that delight, inspire, and enrich.
1: Welcome to Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this chapter of Hilaire Bullock's classic book, we're looking at Pope Clement VII. The Pope, in the 1520s, during the tumultuous time of the Lutheran Revolution in Germany and the troubles with Henry VIII and his marriages, but also a time when the city of Rome was actually sacked by the forces of the Emperor Charles V, Clement VII, the Pope, actually fled for his life and he was imprisoned in the Castle Sant'Angelo until he was finally forced to make an agreement and a treaty with the Emperor many political pressures are swirling around the papacy at this time economic pressures as well the Pope didn't have any money and added to that was the fact that Pope Clement who is from the Medici family was also a man of culture and learning a man who found himself in the middle of events which were probably uh, far greater than he could cope with being of the nature a gentle a kind and a somewhat weak person here's Hilaire Belloc on Pope Clement the seventh Clement VII was the Pope of King Henry VIII's divorce. Now, Clement VII was elected to the papal throne in 1523. Again, the last political acts by which the separation of England from the unity of the Catholic Church was made certain filled the years 1533 to 1534. In 1533, you get the divorce pronounced by Cranmer in spite of the papal prohibition, The marriage with Anne Boleyn acknowledged and her crowning as queen, the birth of Elizabeth, and the declaration by law of her legitimacy. While in the year 1534, you get all the acts one after another, which culminated in the complete separation of England from Rome. That was already accomplished before the summer of 1534, and the seal was set upon the whole process by the full Act of Supremacy in the first days of November of that year. Clement died only six weeks earlier, at the end of September, in the same year, 1534. He is, therefore, the man in supreme authority during all the period of the divorce and of the schism from Rome. Now, the prime historical question which his reign arouses is this. Could the position have been saved? Could the Pope have prevented the loss of England to the unity of the faith? It is a question of the very first importance to the whole history of Europe. For, if England had not gone, Christendom would still be united, and all Europe would be Catholic today. The answer to this question is not, I think, doubtful. Though Clement was guilty of great weakness and of torturous policy, though he often sacrificed the spiritual to the temporal, yet he cannot be made responsible for the disaster. Nothing could have prevented the schism, save the Pope's pronouncement in favor of a divorce, and that the Pope could not do without flying in the face of Christian law, of which he was the supreme guardian by the nature of his office. In order to appreciate the truth of all this, let us begin by appreciating who and what Pope Clement VII was. First of all, he was the son of Julian de' Medici, who in his turn was the brother of the famous Lorenzo de' Medici, that great despot of Florence, generally called Lorenzo the Magnificent, not only one of the wealthiest and one of the most powerful princes of the Renaissance, but also one of the most striking of the many characters of that time. The Medicis were a family which had grown enormously rich in commerce amid a commercial community, their fortunes being undoubtedly helped by an evil practice and particularly by usury and oppression. They had become so wealthy that they ranked with reigning sovereigns. John, the second son of Lorenzo, became Pope Leo X, who was pope when the great outbreak in Germany took place. He and his advisers misunderstood it, and so the Lutheran movement grew under his reign. Leo X's court was splendid, his patronage of the arts glorious and fruitful. He himself was of good life and a scholar, but all that side of his character... Eminently fitted for the general and worldly duties of his supreme office, was of worldly influence only. He kept at his side, to help him manage the political side of the Church, this cousin of his, Julius. Julius de' Medici was made cardinal and was the right hand man of his cousin Leo the Tenth during the reign. After the brief interval of that very fine reforming character, Adrian the Sixth, Julius de' Medici was elected at the age of forty five under the title Clement the Seventh. He was a man of excellent morals, very great erudition, good manners, perfect refinement, if anything, rather too much delicacy of mind and of taste. He was a splendid patron of the arts, and a sure judgment of excellence in them. To take a break here, it was uh, Clement VII who commissioned Michelangelo to complete the painting in the Sistine Chapel with the great painting of the uh, final judgment, the last judgment, which is on the east wall of the chapel. Clement was also a remarkably hard worker, taking the tremendous duties of his office most seriously. Moreover, he was as intelligent as any man in Europe. What he lacked was simplicity also strength of initiative, and power of direction. He lacked both those qualities which make for strong command, though what may be called the squareness of character, and those which make for successful command through the moral simplicity of character. In the face of a difficult and involved position, his policy became a tangle of secret and involved intrigues, and he had that fatal symptom of weakness which takes the form of always playing for time. There are, obviously, occasions when playing for time is wise, but Clement the Seventh was one of those men who always play for time, and, when they find a decision difficult, say to themselves that with sufficient delay anything may turn up in their favour, and who therefore create delay for its own sake. All his method, from the first mention of the desire for divorce expressed by the English court, Up to the very last, still hesitating and half tentative declarations against the actions of the English government, all of these consisted in dependence on delay and play for time. For seven years, he played delay as his only card. Nevertheless, for all his weakness and for all his errors, he could not, I repeat, have prevented the disaster or at least he could only have prevented it at the price of disloyalty to the prestige and power and supernatural claims of the papacy, which it was his first duty to protect. Had he hastened things and pronounced against Henry in as brief a time as he could, the schism would still have taken place, because those who were managing the impulsive, sensual, and weak will of the English king were determined to have the divorce, or if they could not get it, to break with the head of Christendom and have it pronounced upon the local authority of their own servant, the primate of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury. They had behind them not only the will of Anne Boleyn, and later the powerful brain and capacity for rule of Cromwell, but the driving power of universal greed in the wealthier classes who were straining at the leash to be let loose upon the rich pickings and the property of the church." The earliest date on which Clement might have definitively pronounced for or against Henry's claim was late in 1530, or more probably early in 1531. In practice, perhaps, considering all the obstacles of forms, appeals, and the rest, it might have been impossible before 1532. At any stage, it would have been too late. To have granted the divorce against justice and ecclesiastical law would have ruined the already shaken papal office quite apart from the fact that Catherine of Aragon belonged to the most powerful ruling family of Europe. But it is equally true, and that is what people miss, that if Clement had been a more straightforward man and had pronounced in favor of the Queen at the earlier date and against Henry, it would have been already too late to save England. Henry was already thoroughly and openly in the hands of Anne Boleyn and already privately in the hands of Thomas Cromwell with the whole of the English territorial class ready under the protection of Anne and Cornwell to spring upon the revenues of religion. It has been the general fashion for your official anti-Catholic historian, both of the English and German Protestant variety, and of the French and Italian anti-clerical variety, to ascribe Clement's reluctance to pronounce, in favor of the divorce, to the fear and pressure of the great Emperor Charles V, who was Queen Catherine's nephew and the head of her family. Too many Catholics have been affected by the general trend of the written history around them and have half assented to this idea, but it is a false judgment. Clement's mere political intentions during all his reign were obvious enough and even necessary. His policy was certainly not merely to yield to the powerful emperor. It was, rather, to play the emperor's power against that of the French king and thus be independent of both. It is true that Clement Seventh was reconciled with Charles V, after having been treated as a virtual prisoner by the irregular troops of that emperor. It is also true that after long double negotiations and the secret support of Charles's rivals, he came to an open agreement and crowned Charles at Bologna in 1530. It is true that of the various great political forces pulling the papacy various ways, the force of Charles V was, at the critical moment in 1532, the greatest. But it is not true that it decided the issue. What decided the issue was the necessity that any pope would have been under, strong or weak, straightforward or intriguing, to decide upon the merits of the case. Clement went to the extreme limits of concession to Henry VIII, or rather to those who ran Henry VIII, he went beyond the limits of due and rightful concession. The weakest and most blameable of all his acts was a secret promise that he would not recall the case to Rome, but let it be concluded in Henry's kingdom and under Henry's eye. It is true that this promise was conditional, that Clement left himself a loophole of which he could take advantage, and of which he did take advantage when Catherine lodged her appeal. Still, it was intended to deceive and cause delay, and was an act the more reprehensible on that account. Yet, even with all such concessions, with all his hesitation and chance phrases which seemed to give Henry hope of succeeding, the central fact remained. Catherine had solemnly denied the consummation of the original marriage to Henry's brother— "'She was a woman of high character. "'She swore she had never been the real life of Arthur, "'who had died as a boy, and Henry never contradicted her. "'Proof sufficient to overset "'that solemn declaration was lacking. "'There was no sufficient ground upon which "'to quash the marriage of Catherine with Henry "'and to declare it null, unless Clement had been willing "'to admit that he was not the supreme judge in a moral case, "'that is, unless he had been willing to stultify "'all the claims and positions of the papacy.' He had himself said, in his despair and anxiety, that it would be a good thing if the Queen of England were in her grave he had allowed all manner of suggestions for outflanking the difficulty he had even considered catherine's voluntary renunciation and of course everything would have been made easy if catherine had consented no longer to press her solemn declaration or to insist upon her appeal but with catherine making that appeal and taking the obstinate position that she did clement had no choice but to act as he acted even at the risk of losing england And perhaps so delicate was the situation that France, the ally of England, might also be lost. Those who have blamed him most have failed to emphasize his chief grounds for hesitancy and delay, grounds which would have affected even the strongest character. All Christendom appeared to be breaking up. And though England was but a comparatively small and weak power compared with France or the empire, what side she would take in the universal religious struggle was bound to make all the difference, and a pope must needs think twice or three times before he determined however great the moral necessity to risk the loss of England. We may sum up the situation by saying that if a stronger and more direct mind had been at work in the successor of St. Peter, the English schism would have arrived with less loss of honor and moral authority to Rome. But we must add that much as Clement's weakness and shuffling must be regretted, He never passed the boundary beyond which there is abdication or denial of authority. He never compromised the fundamentals of papal power and of its awful claim to moral supremacy among men. There is something supernatural in all this. We always have to be careful in history not to exaggerate evidence of the supernatural, nor to ascribe to supernatural causes what may legitimately be ascribed to natural ones. But here, there seems to be evidence of supernatural guidance. Just one step too far at one moment in papal history would have compromised the papacy in the eyes of posterity and have given solid argument against its claims. That moment fell in the reign of Clement VII, and in that moment the papacy did not fail, even though the pope had sailed so very near the wind. Clement just might, at the most critical moment, when he was being hardest pressed, bullied, not knowing what to do between the great contending forces of which he was the victim, he might just, I say, have overstepped the limit. He might, for instance, have issued a bull in which he declared the original papal power of dispensation for marriage with a sister-in-law to be void. He might have got out of his difficulties by allowing the verdict of the universities to be not advisory to the Holy See, but upon an equal authority with it. He might have taken any one of half a dozen steps, each of which would have been for the first time an admission by a pope that the papacy was not really what it claimed to be. And by a sufficient margin, Clement happily was preserved from so fatal an excess of weakness. He was preserved from it by that divine safeguarding of the church which never fails. But he was also preserved from it by that element in him which, for all his faults, remained strong a recognition of those qualities that were essential to his office thank you for listening to characters of the reformation don't forget to go over to my blog dwightlongenecker.com to browse my books be in touch and read my regular blog posts if you can make a donation towards the support of this podcast then please do so using the yellow donate button in the right sidebar or if you wish sign up to be a donor subscriber don't forget also to listen to my other podcasts, True Fairy Tales, Triumphs and Tragedies, a 23-part series on church history, and others that you'll find there on my blog. Thanks again for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, why not tell somebody else and ask them to tune in?
0: Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at kaneford.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at woodhillcommunitycenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.